Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, this is the Relunchables Podcast. I'm Jordan Holzer, and each episode, we'll be breaking down another 90s, early 2000s kids movie. I'm not alone. Each episode, I'll be having on special guests to help me relive my childhood. This is a bonus episode in which I bring on the writer of Smart House, Stuart Krieger. My listeners will, of course, know some of Stu's other films he's written, including The Land Before Time, A Troll in Central Park, Xenon, True Confessions, and so many more. Let's get into my interview with Stu Krieger, and just because I love hearing it, let's play the Disney Channel original movie, Intro Music. We are now joined by the writer of Smart House, Stuart Krieger. Stu, thank you so much for coming on the Relunchables podcast. It is my pleasure to be here. Uh, before we get into Smart House, I kind of want to go further back. And when did you know you wanted to be a writer? I am a freak. <laughs> uh, so I grew up in Rochester, New York, with absolutely no relatives in the business, no connection to Hollywood, no nothing. And when I was a little kid, it started with I thought I wanted to be an actor in Disney movies. So I used to steal photographs out of the family album and send them, and I would literally address the envelope to Walt Disney, Hollywood, California, and then the letter would be a picture of me saying, look, I'm an adorable redhead, I should be in one of your movies. Uh, oddly enough, he never wrote back. Uh, and then about sixth or seventh grade, I started writing regularly and really realizing that was something I loved to do. And again, in the, <laughs> what can I say, I'm a freak. I think I wrote my first screenplay when I was in sixth or seventh grade. Um, and then when I went to, I went to the State University of Brockport uh, in New York, SUNY Brockport. And when I was there, they didn't actually have a film major, but they had a communications major. And so I was doing every writing class I possibly could. I was expressing, you know, all the things that I wanted to do. I had two incredible mentors there called Ron and Sarah Watts. They were a married couple. And they actually worked with me and together with them and my roommate, we created an exchange program in London. And in the first semester of my senior year, I got to do go to the Polytechnic of Central London and take more writing classes there. And Ron and Sarah were really the first per people in my life who kind of said, I think you could do this for a living. And we made a family pilgrimage to California when I was 12 years old. Uh, we spent two weeks of that time in Los Angeles. And at the end of the two weeks, I said to my parents, uh, so this exists and you guys are going back to Rochester, New York. And they said, yeah. And I said, well, just so you know, as soon as I'm under my own power and can do what I want to do, this is the place I belong. And I graduated from SUNY Brockport in June and in October moved to Los Angeles. That's unbelievable. My mother actually went to SUNY Brockport. So uh, oh, that's right. kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you remember what that uh, sixth grade script was about? Yeah. I mean, what else would it be about? But it was an anxious coming of age, you know, where do I belong in the world kind of story. But yeah. Some anxious teenage thing. So you come out to L.A. and I'm curious, how did you get into uh, children's programming? Was there something that you saw, you know, maybe it was an area that was untapped or was that just where the opportunity came? What kind of drove you into that? 
No, it was interesting with my career because when I first got to LA, as I said, with absolutely no contacts and no real knowledge of the business, one of the things I've said, because I'm now a full-time professor, and one of the things I've said many times to my students is one of the reasons I honestly think I succeeded because I was too stupid to know what the odds were. And so, you know, I, everything wasn't as publicized as it is now. There weren't programs like Entertainment Tonight and all of that constantly being bombarded. And so it was just sort of, why wouldn't I succeed? I want to go be a Hollywood screenwriter. You know, let's go do that. And so one of the things I did when I first got to town is I was just sending resumes everywhere that I could think of that even remotely had anything to do with the entertainment industry. And, you know, to be a page at Universal Studios, to be a tour, I mean, uh, at NBC, to be a tour guide at Universal, to be a critter at Disneyland, anything I could think of. Um, and the first job I actually got was at the now long gone Los Angeles Herald Examiner newspaper as a copy boy. And a copy boy is basically what a PA is on a film set in terms of you just run through all the departments and do whatever anybody needs you to do. And I would make sure some part of every day I was hanging out in the entertainment department. And I bugged him enough, you know, let me do interviews, let me do movie reviews, let me do stuff, let me show you I can write. And little by little, they started to let me do that. And when they would have me do celebrity interviews, I did an interview with Sally Struthers when she was still on All in the Family. I did an interview with Suzanne Blachette when she was on the Newhart Show. And I would be really professional for the first hour and get the interview done. And then I would go, okay, I want to be a writer. Do you have any suggestions? You know? And they were incredible in terms of almost everybody would sit with me for another half hour and give advice and give, and, you know, it just kept coming back to, you're not going to do anything until you have an agent. Mm -hmm. You know, most studios and production companies won't read stuff until it's coming from an established agent. So then I started doing query letters and sending scripts out to agents and finally got somebody to represent me. He got me my first professional writing job, which was on a very low budget feature film called Goodbye Franklin High. And then the turn to family entertainment, interestingly enough, is that really started to happen when I had my own kids. And part of the impetus for it was they were constantly either watching videos or we were taking them to movies. And I would sit there and there were two things that really got under my skin. And one was the preponderance of stupid dads. <laughs> and like, so the only thing we can take away from this is if mom's out of the room for a minute, the washing machine's overflowing, the top's off the thunder, <laughs> and you know, all hell breaks loose. And it was like, wait a minute, I'm a father. My wife is the PTA president. She goes to conventions for three days and nobody dies. You know, <laughs> so it's like, I want, that was one thing. And then the other thing is there was a lot of just really dumbing down to kids and talking down to kids in a way that I resented because it's like, you know, my wife and I were always adamant from the day that both kids were born of, we spoke to them as adults. We never did goo goo gaga baby talk. We were talking to them all the time. We were reading to them all the time. And constantly they were rising to that level because we weren't talking down to them. And so I started to develop this affinity for, you know, I want to be doing this a little bit better. And I was very fortunate in the timing of, I was working on Amazing Stories, which was Spielberg's first foray into television and is now being rebooted and remade and redone. Yeah. But at the time when I was doing that, uh, my son was about a year old, and some point I worked on both seasons of it. And in the second season, his head of development, Deborah Newmeyer, came to me and she said, um, "Stephen and George have this idea for an animated dinosaur movie." And we were talking in a production meeting the other night about you know putting a writer on it. And Stephen thinks you've become an even better writer since you become a dad. Do you want to write this for us? And one thing again that I always tell my students when somebody says to you, Steven Spielberg and George. <laughs> Yeah, they'd like you to write. You don't think a whole lot. You, think, you don't take time in between. You just go, yeah, I do. 
Um, and so what that project was at that point, they had had a draft done that they weren't happy with. And so I said to them, I really don't want to read that script. What I'd really rather do is tell me what the genesis of the idea is. Tell me what it is you're looking for. And let me start from scratch rather than kind of have a bunch of stuff in my head that you're not happy with. Um, and so what I inherited, they had, the, <laughs> and it was literally a manila file folder with scraps of paper. And some of it was on Spielberg stationery, some of it was on napkins, some of it, you know, whatever it was. And it would say things like dinosaurs walk by a burning volcano. <laughs> and then it was just all these bits and scraps and ideas. And it was basically at the time my office at home was a big giant cork wall. And so I just sat there and was pinning things up all over the wall and then moving them around and thinking, well, if we're going to get there, we need, the, you know, what's the thing in between? And then similarly with the characters, they had kind of broad sketches of them, but not fully worked out relationships and all the rest and kind of backstories for them. And, you know, in terms of like Sarah being the only female and, kind of a, a bit of a bully part of the thing was inventing this whole history of that she was among a family of all brothers and she kind of had to be the bully to stand up to them and you know so it was kind of little by little building that story and then working with Stephen and George and Don Bluth who was the director of the film to get something they were happy with and so we worked quite a long time on the story before I ever went to the screenplay and then there it was. That's unbelievable. As someone who grew up in the 90s and early 2000s, those movies are forever with me, uh, to say the least. Nice. And moving on to kind of why we have you on is on the Relunchables podcast is talking about those Disney Channel original movies, which I think were so ahead of their time in terms of really being formative for kids like myself and probably a lot of your students. Maybe they're a little maybe a little young now to remember those movies. I'm not sure. But I'm curious, how did that relationship with the Disney Channel start? And what were you seeing that they were doing that you were like, I need to be part of this? Yeah, it's a really, really important and instructive thing to anybody who thinks they want to be a writer, which is do your research, pay attention to who it is you're going in to meet with, do everything you possibly can to be as prepared as you can. Because what happened with me is the first project I was involved in with them was the first Xenon movie. And, you know, Xenon Girl of the 21st Century was based on a really, really thin kids book there was a kid's picture book. And the things that remained from the picture book to the finished film were, was a kid living on the space station in the 21st century with a best friend named Nebula and a crush on a rock star named Protozoa. And that was basically, that's what was in the book. And what I was told at the time was when I went in to interview it, they did with that what they do with everything, which is, you know, we're interviewing 25 or 30 writers and we'll see whose take we like best and that's who we'll hire. And when I got hired, they said, Oh, and this is one of the things I had done ahead of time. I, I was asking them about the franchise and what they were hoping the DCOMs would become and all the rest of it. And at that point, the Mummy movie under wraps, and I'm trying to think what the second one, only two had been made at that point. And I said, can I please see them before I come in and meet with you? So, you know, watching the films, getting a sense of the tone, getting a sense of what it was they were trying to accomplish, all that was really helpful. But then after I got the job, what I was told was almost every other writer we interviewed came in and said, how I see this movie is it's Star Trek meets 90210. <laughs> and the executive said, neither of those two things are things the Disney Channel would ever do. And they said, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the kids' picture book, Eloise at the Plaza. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's a really famous, long-lasting kids' book about a little girl living at the Plaza Hotel in New York and constantly getting in all kinds of trouble and mischief. She's in everybody's business, and she's all over the hotel and up and down the dumbwaiter and everything else. And so when I went in, I said, this is Eloise at the Plaza on a space station. 
Hmm. And they went, bam, that's what the Disney Channel is doing. We're hiring you. Um, and then, you know, when that movie got made, it was incredibly successful. Uh, and that was, so Smart House was the second movie that I did after Xenon. And then one of the things, if I can brag for a minute. Please uh, do. They did a big party celebrating the first 50 DCOMs because at the time they were doing one a month. And so the pipeline was incredibly prolific and it was just sort of bam, 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 one after the other. And so they had this big party in Hollywood. Uh, you know, I forget which movie they were screening, but oh, it was Cadet Kelly. So Cadet Kelly was the 50th movie and they were screening that and then having a big reception afterwards. And so when they did that party for the first 50 movies, I had written 10 of them. Wow. So it was like, wow. dang, that's a pretty good average. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, one fifth of your output, I wrote. And, and I think, again, you know, it goes back to your original question with this. Part of it was by knowing who they were, by understanding what they do. And then part of it, you know, with my no stupid dads and some of the things that were really important to me, there were times when I would get in fights with them and they would say, what about this? And it's like, I'm not doing idiot dads, you know. <laughs> and if you want to bring somebody else in, that's fine. But that's kind of my line in the sand. And then there were certain times where I, and this it was in particular with Katie's character in Smart House. There was a couple of times where they would say, that really doesn't sound like a 10-year-old to me. And I would say, well, you know what? My 10-year-old said that last night and deal with it. And the thing that was incredible at the time was all of the, of the, all of the Disney uh, Channel executives that I was dealing with, one of them had children. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so I was like, you know, I'm sorry. I'm, I beg to differ with you. <laughs> and my daughter's lovely and everything, but she's not an off-the-chart genius. Uh, and I stole that line directly from her, you know, that she said at dinner a few nights ago. So, and I think that really jumps off the screen. At least when I watched it as a kid, I remember I'm like, "This is what me and my friends sound like." This is what you know. I have a younger sister who's three years younger than me, and I was like, "Oh my god, that's what Ashley sounds like." Yeah. And it's just incredible rewatching those movies. And I rewatched Smart House last night in preparation for this, and we just finished recapping it for an episode on the Relaunchables podcast. And I'm curious, how did the idea for Smart House? come about? Was it something, I, I believe, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, that you maybe visited NASA in preparation for Xenon and Smart House? Is that true? Uh, well, I was not the original writer on Smart House, so I want to make that really clear. Uh, a fellow named William Hudson was hired first. Uh, so the basic concept, honestly, I'm not sure if it was his original concept or something Disney brought to him, because of the 50 movies I did, it was a combo of. There was times, particularly with Phantom of the Megaplex, um, the executive on that came to me and he said, I woke up this morning and that title was in my head. I don't know. I have no idea what the movie is, but, you know, good title, right? Do you want to write it? No. And it was another, when somebody says you want to write it, the answer is yes. And then you figure out what the movie is. So with Smart House, I'm not sure if it was his original concept or theirs that he ran with. But in terms of your question, it wasn't NASA. It was the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena that I went to. Um, and initially that was for Xenon. And it was one of the things that's so funny because I've done several different interviews and podcasts and magazine interviews with both these two movies. And they've said, you know, so much of the technology that you talked about is now true. And, you know, basically the, the um, screen that Xenon had with her friends was the iPad and you know, <laughs> Zoom conferencing and everything you did. It's like, well, it's now happening. You're amazing. <laughs> and it's like, no, I went and talked to scientists that, you know, what are you working on and where is this kind of headed and going? And then one of the other interesting things with both Smart House and the Xenon films was my concept was much more that I would always go back 50 years and say, you know, sometimes sci-fi goes immediately to it's all going to be flying cars and metallic suits. 
And I would say, but if we look back 50 years, some of the technology has changed, but we still wear pants, women still wear dresses, we still drive cars on the ground. You know, so it, it was extrapolating forward, but not fast forward. And so the, the, I went twice to JPL and they were all so available and, you know, just accessible and really helpful. And then it's knowing the right questions and then there's some other resources they steered me toward. So with Smart House, when I came onto the project, the basic framework was there. And the basic idea of the house and what the house was capable of was there. And kind of what they were asking from me was, we're not fully satisfied with the emotional story right now. And so sort of the underpinning of why this family in this house at this time, we don't feel is working entirely. And so a lot of that, the character work and the relationships and the dad and Sarah and Ben and his mom issues, and those were a lot of the stuff that I was more focused on. And then extrapolating the technology that I needed to make the story work as opposed to the other way around. And so some of the things, you know, with the screens and some of the stuff at the party and the bully getting thrown out and all of those things really came from, I need these things to serve the story as opposed to building a story to serve the technology. Sure. And I think rewatching it, that's what really makes the film last. I know the technology is is right up to date with where we are today, but seeing that scene where Ben is watching the home videos of his mom and it still gets me. And I know that's what got me back then and it still gets me today. And I'm curious, how did that, I guess not trope, but how did that idea come about when you were thinking about what could be the emotional beat for this film? And I see, we see this a lot with AI, most recently in movies like Her, where characters kind of get really close to these AI figures and they're not real, but we want them to be real. Yeah. Well, one of the things, the office I am sitting in talking to you right now is at the front of my house. This is a home we've been in for 30 years. And I have two paneled double pane acoustic doors on the office that are like a recording studio. And so the idea, and my kids from the time they were little tiny kids and they're now 31 and 35 years old. But when they were little kids, it was always, if dad's in the office and the door's closed, leave him alone, he's working. But the other thing that I did, and like you were saying with your little sister, if you watch my Disney Channel movies, I have an older son and a younger daughter, and all the characters kind of progress in age <laughs> as my character, I mean, as my kids were growing up. And so one of the things that I would always do is I would open the door, and, and you know, my wife was a stay-at-home mom, so all the neighborhood kids were always here after school. There was always the stairs to the upstairs or right outside the office door, and I would see them charging up and down. But at some point in every afternoon, I would open the door, I would listen to them for about 20 minutes, close the door and just start typing. <laughs> and so, it's like, you know, all of the dynamics, all of the relationship, all of the language. And, and we have very dear friends who live in San Diego. And years ago, the mom said, my kids are watching Disney Channel all the time. But I, when if I'm in the kitchen and they're in the other room watching, I always know when it's one of your movies because it sounds just like Gus and Rosie, who are my kids. <laughs> it was like, yeah, you're right. But, you know, the old adage of write what you know. And so with the emotional arc as well, it was always about, and uh, you know, one of the core tenets of screenwriting is I want him to have this longing, I want him to have this loss, I want him to have this need, but then how do we do that visually? And so the idea of both, you know, Pat looking at 50s moms to study how to become a mom, Ben looking at home movies to remember his mom, his whole arc of, you know, I'm afraid if you start dating, it'll erase mom and Katie will never remember her. Was Katie the actor or the character? I forget. <laughs> Angie. Yeah, Katie was the actress's name that played Angie. But yeah, so it was, you know, looking at those arcs of what do they need? How do they get it? And then how do I take that and make it visual as opposed to interior? 
because in film it's not really helpful to have a kid laying on their bed feeling bad you know <laughs> yeah yeah so I'm curious now with the advent of Disney Plus and all these movies kind of being unlocked out of the vault, have you seen a resurgence for these movies? Have your students talked about them in class with you? What, what have you seen? Yeah, it's crazy. Because <laughs> uh, what's very funny, uh, when you were saying, you know, have the students, my students now aged down, are they too young for it? Um, the amazing thing is I'm shocked endlessly, including this quarter when we're doing everything online, of uh, there's always... And, and watching sometimes, especially in person, they'll come in and they'll go, um, this is really embarrassing. And I'm kind of, but would you sign my DVD of Smart House? <laughs> and Land Before Time DVDs come in and Xenon VHS, and, you know. Um, so the life of them has been amazing to me. Uh, but then, yes, with Disney Plus all over again. And, and it's very funny because when the pandemic started, one of my former students, who I'm still very much in touch with, called and said, can we have a day where we come over and we just watch your movies back to back to back on Disney Plus? And I said, well, no, first of all, you're not allowed to come over. <laughs> Second of all, stay home and do that and we can talk about it. Uh, but then the other thing that was incredibly touching is in 2017, I'm pretty sure, the Riverside Film Festival gave me a Lifetime Achievement Award and they had asked for like a clip package to be able to show at the award ceremony. And I went, I work in a film department. Let me ask the students to do it. I don't have to do this. Um, so I was in touch with Disney Channel. I said, if you can send me a bunch of clips from the movies I did, that would be great. And then I'm going to have one of my students cut it together. And what they ended up doing that, you know, you can imagine me sitting there just bawling like an idiot watching this thing. But they would show a clip and then they interviewed a bunch of their fellow students about what was your first memory of this movie? What was your favorite stew movie? And you know, and them talking about what the movies meant to their childhood. And there were things like one of the students saying that when I saw True Confessions, the movie I did with Shia LaBeouf, she said, I have a brother who's special needs. And that was the first time I had ever seen a character like him portrayed on screen. And it was so empowering and important to me. And then, you know, another kid talking about I lost a parent early and watching Smart House and what it did. And, you know, just all of that. But when they were speaking, and some of it was just really joyful memories. And the number of, also, every time they kept cutting back to another kid, they were all going, zoom, zoom, zoom. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, we get it. Um, kind of the staying power of the movies has been the most surprising and wonderful thing to me. Sure. And I won't admit that anytime one of my friends texts me nowadays with the quarantine, how are we going to do this video chat? I always send them the protozoa meme that just says zoom, zoom, zoom on it. So <laughs> it's still being used today, and I'm sure Very countless good. others. Yeah. Uh, do you have one of the films that you've written as as your so-called favorite or is it like your kids and they're all kind of your favorites a little bit of both i mean the, the special place in my heart is always going to be xenon um in two parts because it was the first and what was really interesting is i was back again when they did a party for the 100th disney channel movie <laughs> uh and it was several years the last film that i did was cowbells and i think that was 2003 or four but kind of when I pulled out of the active show business thing is when I started teaching the first year and a half I was teaching, I was also the executive story editor on a Nickelodeon show called Toot and Puddle. And then suddenly I realized, wait, now I have two full-time jobs and that's not what I was doing. <laughs> I was trying to, you know, make this segue. And so since actively, you know, pulling away from it, one of the things about Xenon that was so special to me was everything about, you know, that was a, like inventing that world, inventing that language. And still, you know, again, when students come in and go, see this, Lapidus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So I think you know that's kind of got the special place, and and the fact that then its success was the launch of me being able to stay employed there for as long as I was. And the thing I was going to say about the hundredth movie party is Gary Marsh, who's still the head of the network, got up at the beginning of the party and he said, um, you know, we've now done a hundred of these films. They resonate around the world. They're shown in every country. And he said, when people come up to me on the street and want to talk about our movies, most people assume they want to talk about High School Musical. But the truth is they want to talk about Xenon and Smart House. And I was like, yes, <laughs> nice. So, you know. I completely agree. We had a debate on the Relunchables of what was the apex of these Disney Channel original movies. And my counterpart kept bringing up High School Musical. But I always tell him that that was the end of the run. It really was the, you know, the Smart House, the Brink, the Johnny Tsunamis, the Xenons that were really the peak of Disney Channel original movies. Um, Stu, I'm sure my listeners would be curious. I know we alluded to it throughout most of the podcast. What you're up to now? Are you still writing? Uh, yeah. One of the great things about when I started teaching, like I said, I went full time academic in 2006. And at the time, everybody said, but you'll keep pursuing the show business thing, right? And I said, no, I'm really trying very much to wind that down because part of it is, you know, when you take a job, you're under their time clock. And so it was like, the things I want to be writing now are things that I have control over, that I can finish when I finish, that the deadlines are mine as opposed to imposed on me. And so I started writing plays and then I also wrote a novel um, and the novel took seven years to complete. Uh, it was a completely adult Nothing to do with the world of family <laughs> entertainment whatsoever. Um, and that was published 2018, I believe, the uh, November of 2018. Uh, it's called That One Cigarette and available on Amazon. Uh, but that was really fun because what was great about that project was for all my years of entertainment writing, it was always to a specific page count with a specific deadline. And, you know, it's a Disney Channel movie. We need between 95 and 110 pages by Saturday. And with the book, it was really, it's going to be as long as it is. It'll be done when it's done. I'll write when I have time to write. And part of the seven years in the making was there was, I was department chair for three years and there was lots of time where I just could not write at all. It was so consumed, but I knew it was still there. And it was always kind of my summer project and my salvation project. And it was really, really satisfying. And what was interesting because I was so used to writing to compress time and deadlines and all the rest of it is the book is 200 and I think 70 something pages. And the first draft was 520 pages because to begin with, it was just like, write everything. And then, and then finally, when I you know, started editing, it was like, that's cute, but you don't need that. Or that's not advancing the plot. Or that's a really nice segue or sidebar, but doesn't belong in this book. Get rid of it. Um, and then the other thing that pre-pandemic, um, I had written a play very specifically, the department I'm in at the University of California, Riverside is theater, film and digital production. So we're making films, we're doing films. The students are writing, directing, acting and things. Um, and so I wrote a play specifically for our student demographic. And it was slated to be part of our theater season this year with a full production for spring quarter, which we're now in. Um, that obviously got postponed. But the interesting thing is with necessity being the mother of invention, my, one of my incredibly talented colleagues was slated to direct the project. And she said, you know, it was already cast. The sets were half built. And she said, what if we did a radio play version of it instead for this quarter hmm. and then we can do the film, the full production whenever we're back on campus. So virtually we are now in three night a week rehearsals with the previously cast cast. And on May 14th, we will be doing a live stream presentation of the play. <laughs> and one of the things about, you know, just continually 
as an artist dealing with what's in front of you, one of the things to convert it to the radio play version versus the stage play is we decided that instead of somebody dryly reading stage direction, which would be really boring, we were going to make customers kind of do that narration because it's set in a diner and the lead characters are five waitresses in the diner. And so the rewriting that I've been doing, and I'm still in the process of, we're about halfway through, but it's taking all of that, you know, Cass is standing at the pass waiting for her order to come up and putting that into dialogue for a character sitting at the counter going, you notice Cass over there? She's kind of cranky today. You know? <laughs> and actually making, but it's working. And so, you know, like I said, we will have a live stream version of that May 14th. That's awesome. I think writers are oddly situated for this pandemic. Are you are you just telling your students like use this time, go write. Like this yeah. is a beautiful time to do so. Yeah. And and when you know it was all first starting to unfold and the first threats of we're moving our classes online, I was hysterical with them. You know, but it's so about the interaction and it's being in the room and when I'm teaching a writing workshop so much of the energy comes from feeding off of each other and bouncing and and all that and we're now in week 3 and it's really working because everybody's so hungry. You know, in, in my screenwriting workshop, it's 12 students and we're Zooming together and everybody's on screen and everybody's weighing in and we're making it work. Wow. Uh, Stu, I can't thank you enough for your time. I just had five quick rapid fire questions if All you're right. ready. Yep. Are there any uh, TV shows you're currently binging during this quarantine? Ozark. Ozark. Nice. Great third season. Uh, what's your favorite AI movie? Ooh, that's a good one. Actually, oddly enough, probably AI. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great one. That's yeah. a great one. Jude Law, yeah. Haley Joel Osment. Yeah. I thought, is it cheesy to say that since it's in the title? It really was. <laughs> uh, would you sign up to live in the smart house yourself, you and your family? Oh, no. Uh, it's, been one of, it's been one of the really interesting things about the pandemic and moving classes online. I am such a technophobe, and I'm so convinced that it's all going to kill us. Uh, <laughs> that I would have been the first one, the first time anything glitched in the smart house, it would like, I'm out of here. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite Disney Channel original movie that you weren't a part of? Ooh, another very, very good question. I, like I said, Under Wraps was the very first and I was a big fan of that. I thought they did a really good job of that. And I, I, I'm trying to cheat really quick because I have a poster <laughs> on my wall right there and I'm looking like, uh, and I think I'm okay with uh, going with under wraps. Nice. And uh, last one, most importantly, if you got approached to write a potential Smart House sequel, I know Sarah during the movie talked about maybe a smart office. So if we move this to a smart office, possibly maybe a smart school, would you sign up to write it? Sure. Nice. Uh, thank you so much, Stu, for coming on the Relaunchables podcast. Hey, Jordan, thank you. I would like to thank my guest, Stuart Krieger, for coming on the podcast. You could find his latest novel, That One Cigarette, on Amazon. You could subscribe to the Relunchables podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a rating or review, five stars only. Next week, we'll be covering The Goat. You know I'm talking about Brink, so stay tuned.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.